first, today, we're going to meet the incredible Sandy Wong with Rugs by Rue. Sandy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm Sandy Wong. I'm based in Vancouver. Uh, I'm a mom of three and a dog. Uh, and Rugs by Rue is an online e-commerce store that sells area rugs that are healthy, sustainably, and <laughs> that are healthy, sustainable, and ethically made. Thanks, Sandy. Excellent. And also here today, we have Bippin Dylan. Bippin, please, in under 60 seconds. Um, thank you, Matt. My name is Bippin Dylan, and I am a mom of two kids. I also have a dog. Um, my passion is entrepreneurship. I love supporting entrepreneurs. I've been one since I was 18 in various areas and sectors. And um, most recently, I have been focusing on my role in the corporate world, uh, currently in a contract for Nike. Thus, the Nike hat today, product placement. Are we going to get a check, do you think, from them? Likely not. <laughs> views on the episode one of the We Maple uh, podcast. Let's crack eight views and uh, checks in the mail. Yeah, you know, we had a certain level of relatedness and we had an initial conversation about entrepreneurship. And Sandy, really um, curious, you know, you'd started a, a rug company. What was it that got you inspired to want to do that? Uh, at first it was my kids. I was just trying to find a healthier option for my home. And there was a lot of like PVC mats that are available, but I didn't want anything plastic in my home. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole of researching what would be a healthier option. And that's when I came across these amazing brands from around the world that make like healthy machine washable, natural material rugs and i realized that they're not available in north america and that's when i decided to bring it into canada and there's a social mission behind rugs by rue is that correct there is yeah so when i first started the business um, i was researching a lot about the carpet and rug industry um, and i came across this documentary called the price of free uh, and it was about um, the rug industry and how, well, I saw a documentary and it was called The Price of Free. And it's about, um, it, it's, it's created by an organization called Goodweave International. And they are an organization that goes into factories to rescue children um, from these workplaces. And when I saw the documentary, they actually showed actual footage of this rescue crew going into the factories and retrieving these kids. And they were really scared. They weren't understanding what was happening. And they were actually running away from these people who were there to rescue them because they didn't want to get in trouble. And all they wanted to do was be able to go home. And when I saw that footage, um, I was watching it with my daughter, who was four years old at the time. And I just got really emotional and I couldn't believe that the children in the documentary were the same age as my daughter. And so after watching that, that became like a personal mission as well as the mission of Rugs by Rue is to abolish child labor in my lifetime. How will Rugs by Rue abolish child, child labor? Yeah, um, a lot of the, a lot of the work that a lot of the stuff that we do behind the scenes for Rugs by Rue is creating awareness um, through all our channels, um, social channels, all our 
um, our blogging is really to create awareness around the topic because I think a lot of people don't actually realize how prominent the child labor issue is within India. And so when you go and buy a rug, the first thing you think of is like maybe just going to a big box store in your in your city and grabbing a rug from there and have no idea where it's made. Um, so that's kind of like the the first issue is creating awareness around the topic um, and also being selective with the suppliers that we bring on. So every supplier that we bring on, we go through a whole curation process. We ask them, where's the source? Where's the factory? Where is the where does the material come from? Like, are you aware of what farms they come from? So we we try to trace it all the way down to the root from farm and follow it through the whole process from farm to floor to make sure that there is no child labor involved in, in the process. Um, so I think it's it's a combination of creating the awareness and also being selective with the suppliers that we choose and telling people that, hey, these are the suppliers that we trust. Um, and so if it's, it, it is a supply and demand kind of driven model where if the, the less you demand those unethical products and the less it will be able to survive basically. So Sandy, I have a question for you and I don't know if this works and if it works within the format. So I want to ask this question, but you can edit it. Um, and I'll just keep going with it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So my question to you, Sandy is what would you say to people that, um, feel that we're, we as North Americans are coming into countries like India and imposing our values on them? Because I've traveled to India before and I've seen, I, you know, um, it was, gosh, I, I want to say I haven't really been there for over 20 years, but I don't know how much of this has changed. But I remember distinctly when I went um, shopping, for instance, um, they asked me, hey, would you like some help out with your bags? And uh, my mom was like, yeah, that would be great. And they literally sent this kid who was carrying our two bags of shopping in his hands. And they were about like a couple inches off the floor. You know what I mean? As he was carrying. And I remember turning my mom, I was like, this is, this is terrible. And she said, Bippin, this is just how it is here. Yeah. And she's like, they have a job and this is their family business. And he's just supporting their family business. And I said, well, is that, this family and she said well I don't know maybe it's not but I remember what like having that dissonance like that confusion between like what's right and wrong that is a really good question um and that I think is part of why like I, I have a I have a really good mentor in the industry and every time I say I'm gonna abolish child labor she's like you got to stop saying that because it's actually a lot bigger than you think. And it's a, it's, it's very rooted in culture. Um, there is, there has been a lot of progress that's been made by one individual. I don't know if you're familiar with him. His name is Kailish Satyarthi. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, and he was the one actually who created that documentary that I mentioned, The Price of Free. Um, and he does a lot of, um, he's taking a lot of initiatives um with the government to start implementing um, regulations to monitor and regulate the industry because it starts with that. Um, if there's no regulation, then it really is hard to enforce anything. 
And it's hard for families to kind of wrap their heads around, oh, like this is not normal, right? Like, as I said, like in the documentary, those kids were running away from the rescue crew because they're like, I need to work here so that I can make money and pay off the debt and go back home, right? So to them, it's so normal. And um, so one of the, the I, I could see it being tackled from different angles, right? Like you need to tackle it from the government perspective, implementing the proper regulations, getting the cooperation from other countries who are importing these goods from India into their own country and being aware of like, like there should be regulations involved in that. And also um, like organizations that work with the, the factories to make sure that there's no child labor in the factory and creating like a safe environment for the adults. And also to make sure that the adults are paid fairly. Because if you speak to any mother, like they would not want to send their child to work if they don't have to. And that's really the issue is they feel like they have to because they're not being paid enough and there's no food on the table. So the children has to work to compensate for the difference. But if the adults are paid fairly, then then they don't need to send their kids to, to, to work and they can actually send them to schools. And so uh, there is an organization that I mentioned earlier, Goodweave International, which is taking this holistic approach to the issue. They're not just retrieving the kids because if you retrieve the kids, they're just going to go back like in a couple of weeks, but they are working with the factories, creating safe practices, creating fair wages, and also building schools so that this can be like basically cut at the root. Right. And then the other piece I feel like that we as a company are moving towards now, which is not actually being addressed right now is the child labor at the farm level. There is no regulation and organizations that oversee the children that are working on the family farms. And I think that is probably the next step that needs to be tackled. And that can be tackled by us, like the companies, the manufacturers, like really tracing it down to the root. Like, are you getting getting your cotton and wool from directly from a farm that you're familiar with? Or are you getting it from an auction site? where you you can't even verify where it's coming from. So there are all these elements uh, that have to come into play to resolving the issue on a greater scale. And then I think once that happens, then the culture will shift. And what's to be said about, well, those communities would have, you know, no money coming into them if it wasn't for these large organizations that are, yeah, okay, they're exploiting children, but isn't having a little bit of money in a community and preventing what could potentially be starvation, isn't, isn't that better? Like, what's that line But like, for, to that argument of, well, if we didn't come in and employ kids, they'd have no money and be not eating anything. Yeah, and there are also a lot of really great companies that are doing really great things there. Like there are actually rug companies, uh, brands that we carry that are transforming an entire community. And they are training the women to, to uh, they're training the women to train other women to do what they do. And by doing that, it's more of a long-term solution because yes, you could put your kid to work today and bring that bag of rice home today, but that's not really creating a better future for the community because it's just going to keep going in that pattern whereas when you can transform an entire community 
and up level everyone's mentality of how how much they should be paid for their work then you start having children going to school and seeing the value of it and that's how you could get the long-term benefits of something like this and right now i think a lot of like what you're saying is like a lot of people a lot of people or a lot of families are really dealing with like the short term they're seeing they're seeing debt and they're seeing that okay the only solution is is sending my kids to work but the other solution that all these one of these particular brands in that we carry Jaipur Foundation for example they're coming in and transforming the entire village or an entire community and that's what i think um will be i think that that kind of approach is the solution that we're looking for yeah i got that and yeah i mean i think we can all agree like cutting off the fins of sharks hucking them back in the ocean getting and recruiting kids in certain parts of africa and putting them into war and then you know beating some kids with some bamboo sticks building rugs or whatever it is that they're up to out there uh, is not a good thing. So with Rugs by Rue, like how do you foresee, you know, you mentioned awareness, but like how do you get a, a society of culture for the most part that it's like a mom or maybe a dad, but generally speaking, it's going to be a female who's out buying a rug. How do you get them to look at rug A that costs X and rug B that costs Y? How do you get them to want to buy rug Y that might cost more, but there hasn't been child labor when we're so... 17 steps away from that child labor how do you get that shift in mindset to occur yeah like you're you're absolutely right like i think when whenever we mention child labor as being part of an issue when you buy rugs it, it's actually very intimidating so with rugs by rue uh we actually put at the forefront of the message that we we emphasize the health and sustainability aspect of it more so than the child labor like the child labor piece is always something that we mention third um the first piece we always mention is health and then sustainability and then child labor um and, and so that's kind of the way that we've approached the, the marketing, just so that uh, it doesn't come across as like over overwhelming to some people. Um, but I think um, to make a real difference, it really does require a huge, huge awareness piece. And that cannot be done through normal marketing initiatives. So the idea that you presented to me the other day about creating a documentary to really bring this issue to light with the general public is a fantastic idea, I think. And I think that's kind of where we're, we're heading with all this. And yeah, that's so kind of Sandy. Like our next step. Yeah, Sandy, I think what I'm I'm also hearing is um is is how important that educational piece is and how important it is to speak into um who your audience is in terms of being, you know, really big people. Right? And that you're present to the big ask that you have of them, right? You're asking them to, um, you know, open up their wallets, make a decision 
that some other people around them may not even know, you know, that, that they've made this conscious decision to buy a rug that is sustainably made and isn't going to have those offsets and is going to be healthier. And a lot of times that's like the unsung hero, right? Not a lot of people are going to know that they're walking around on a rug that's made that way. And a lot of people are willing to make those decisions, you know, just as we've seen changes in the, I guess the food industry is probably the best one that we can think of. I mean, Whole Foods wouldn't even be in existence today if people weren't willing um, to want to pay that extra money for, you know, sustainability and local and organic. And I mean, is that, is that, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that really kind of the demographic that you're also speaking to is those kinds of moms and those kinds of families? Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like people who care about health and sustainability will care about child labor. They just don't know. So by targeting, well, by, by making it about health and sustainability, it will attract the audience that we are after to hear us out on the child labor piece. Um, our audience are the moms. <laughs> our audience are the parents who have young children, um, who like the outdoors, who likes um, enjoying healthy foods, who are probably purchasing from Whole Foods, who are willing to pay that extra money for the good stuff. Um, and they are the moms who are following people on, on Instagram who talk about toxins and PFAS chemicals and all that. So that's our audience. And we see that that audience also cares about the ethical piece as well. They just don't know that they can demand it. And so where, where are you at today, Sandy, with your business? You mentioned you've, you know, you've made a pretty significant investment the Rugs by Rue brand is really impressive. Your website is really impressive. And, you know, you mentioned you had some advice to shift your model or maybe was it to um, change the direction or to um, give up? You know, you've got a family. Like, where are you at in your entrepreneurship journey of, like, what are, your, what are you confronted with right now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Um... It has been quite a roller coaster, to be honest. Like I, we started the company right around COVID. And that was like the perfect time to start an e-commerce store. Like everyone was jumping online. Um, and you would not have thought that people would be willing to buy a rug without touching it. And they do. They are willing to buy a rug without feeling it and touching it and seeing it in person. And so the first couple of years, it was actually really good. Um, we heavily relied on digital marketing, um, paid ads uh, to generate the traffic. And now I feel like we're at a stage where it's gotten competitive. Um, there's a lot more e-commerce stores on the market. People are slowly going back to shopping from brick and mortar. So... Rugs by Rue right now 
is at a very slow phase. And also, we are turning off a lot of our paid ads and transitioning to more of an organic reach, which I feel like is the right decision for the long term. But until we ramp up to that level where we are getting those conversions and the organic traffic, um, we're right now at a point where we are facing cash flow issues, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so with the the other project on the side, which is I'm I'm trying to develop our own rug brand, right? Because like we've observed what customers want. There are certain brands that we carry that offer options A and B, but are missing options C and D. And there's other brands that offer C and D, but are missing A and B. And we are creating a rug brand of our own, which has A, B, C, and D all in it. And so that's um, a project on its own that requires funding as well to grow. And I am super excited and super passionate. And I totally believe in that initiative. And so that's kind of like where I'm at right now. It's like, okay, Rugs by Root is kind of struggling, but I also want to grow this and I need cash to grow it. And so what do I do? Um, so yeah, so, so that's where we're at right now. And Bippin, you've got some relatedness to the world of entrepreneurship too. You were um, uh, had either started a business in the past and then now also you're kind of one foot in your career, which sounds like that's high performance and high demand. And then you have kind of one foot in a current venture. Can you give us some context there? Yeah, no, so great. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, so to give you some context, and I love hearing um, everything that you're sharing, Sandy, uh, the entrepreneurial journey can be so scary and so lonely. And <laughs> you can wonder if you're really doing the right thing. And um, I wanted to address that. I think it's amazing that you're really out to play this long game. And that long game is inside of that, um, that or organic, really, if you think about the farmer's market approach, I, I think that, you know, everybody starts off as being really a farmer at a farmer's market, where you start to tell your story you know, why am I, why did I even choose this? What has me excited about this? And people really resonate with that. You know, people really love to buy. Um, they, they love to be a part of that experience for others. And they can really resonate with that because they resonate in that in themselves. Um, so that's such a beautiful part of what you're doing. Um, to go back to the question that you are asking me, Matt, um, yeah, so uh, at a very, gosh, my kids, when I launched my stationary business, so I was selling event stationary for the cultural market. It was something that I was really, really passionate about. I, um, being Southeast Asian, I would see a lot of wedding cards. I would eventually, I would get wedding cards and some of them would come and you can see that they were directly from India and they had kind of an, a very Indian aesthetic. And then I would every once in a while see somebody who was making cards that they made them themselves because they were looking for it to have more of that kind of Western vibe. And I thought that it would be wonderful to create something that really blended the two together um, and something that was affordable and was beautiful design. And I started off on this, this venture. I, I started off with having a booth at a wedding show 
and starting to test the market. And I got a few orders and essentially I was just building, um, building my audience through Facebook. And I didn't even have a website at this point. Um, and once I started to feel like I was getting some traction and people were interested, that's when I started on, on actually building out the website once. So the product came first, I started selling that, then the website came later. Um, and, and then of course I got to a stage where kind of similar to you, I knew now I'd honed in on like, okay, these are the pain points. Okay, great. Okay. These are the kinds of products I see that are going to help build on that. Um, and at that point, and you know, I was kind of okay with the process taking as long as it did because I had two young kids. Um, when I initially started, um, my, I launched my first website at the time my daughter was just born. Um, and literally the website just sat <laughs> because I didn't have actually a lot of time to market it. Um, and I was okay with that. I was okay with it just going at the pace it was going at. Um, and, and then later on, I, I got to a point where I knew I was going to take it to the next level. And that's really when I brought in another business partner and, um, and her and I created a wonderful line of, uh, event stationary products that then we got to another stage of our business after launching our second website together, where we had to iterate on that. You know, there was some learnings we were getting back, not to mention, our website, we had, um, it, it required quite a bit of technical, um, software development that went into it because people ordered it and they could customize their own products online. And so we were in the similar situation as Sandy where cash flow was an issue. Um, we had hit COVID. So unlike your circumstances of where COVID actually helped you, COVID hindered us because all of a sudden people weren't getting, having larger events any longer. And so, um, it would have taken another round of product iteration or switching or pivoting and neither my business partner or, or I just had enough capacity to take that on with having our kids at home and all of the other things that comes along with, um, being, a working entrepreneurial mother. <laughs> and so I parked that business and my, and I went back to the corporate world. And, um, like I said, I've always been an, an entrepreneur. I've loved the experience of developing something that's like new and interesting and really harnessing that creative, well, quite honestly, sexual energy, right? It can be so, um, exciting and so passionate and it can really enliven your life um when you're in that in that space um and so yeah so really to temper that on many levels was had its impact but then at the same time i was able to um support and grow my skills like i've grown tremendously in the last um three years since COVID hit in 2020 um, because entrepreneurs, you know, we're just like everyone else, you know, we're learning, we're on the, we're, yeah, we're learning, right. We're learning as you go along. And so it's been wonderful to be back in the corporate world, um, helping my teams navigate the similar journey as, as I went through, but just on a bigger scale. 
when you when you said that entrepreneurs bipin are like everybody else what do you mean um i think that there's many of us that have that entrepreneurial spark or energy i don't even i wouldn't say that everybody has the fortitude to follow through with it you know um that's that's where i think entrepreneurs are unique is that despite all of that headwind <laughs> you know they're just navigating through it um and there's a level of grit and grind um that they build in all of that that they continue to persevere and i think that's really what has them stand out how good did that first order feel sandy when you're like someone paid you for your first rug like do you remember when that happened oh yeah um my my store is on shopify and it's connected to my phone so it goes ching every time i get an order so the first time I, yeah it was like what this actually works <laughs> um yeah it's a it's a really great feeling like the the piece that i love most about my business is connecting with my customers and that's the piece i still own to this day like i've built out my team um and i've pieced out um pieces of it but the piece that i've always owned is the customer service piece because i just love connecting with them especially if they have kids and uh and and you can you can hear it it's like wow thank you for offering me access to this healthy option for like it's going your rug is going in my baby's nursery and my child isn't even born yet like like that's the difference that i know i can make and that is what i love most about my business bipin you mentioned that kind of you use the term sexual energy and like dopamine serotonin adrenaline you know you're in this fear response as an entrepreneur and maybe you've had to sell something or make some dramatic sacrifice for your business to work and then you get that check that that deposit you know that like fear response and then like satisfying that fear response like so much of this experience of being an entrepreneur is driven by that like those receptors in the brain we were doing that micro meditation before we were speaking ultimately our experience here as human beings is driven by these chemicals in our mind and dopamine and look take take you ding first sale like what could you share bipin around like you were saying around that the similarities um around like how do you manifest that and what's different about that in the corporate world versus when it's your own thing yeah so I'm yeah, I'm so super happy to that you asked that question. So, in the work that I do in the corporate world, we often talk about this inside of what we call a scrum agile framework. And so in that framework in a team, we are essentially creating teams of uh of startups, right? Um instead of there being an entrepreneur, there's what we call the product owner or the product manager. and that person is doing exactly what what um Sandy is doing 
they're meeting with the customers or sometimes their internal stakeholders, but they are passionate about making, like really solving someone's problems. That's what they're, that's what they're into. That's what they're so passionate about. It's like that human connection. Like I care about the things that you care about. And that's where that connection is so similar to being what we would say being an entrepreneur is like. Oftentimes, you know, people that um, are in that PM or product manager role are the ones that go into the leadership track and become the directors and the VPs because they're the ones that have that kind of passion and that drive, um, that relentlessness to want to keep delivering value. Um, and then there's the other team members. So in my role, I'm playing the role of the scrum master. So I'm coaching my teams. I'm supporting that, you know, that the, the person that's in that product manager role. And then you have all of your team members and the team members, you're there to really inspire them and to hold them to account. That's my role, you know, as a scrum master, where can I hold you to account? Where can I keep you in check? Sandy, so that you're not overbuilding, right? Where are we doing cycles of learning and iterating on that product? I could have used a scrum master when I was um, when I was on this journey, and now I get to be that person, and that makes me so excited. Um, and how that I guess relates back is it's still that same. Um, experience of wanting to make a difference and, and the difference that you do make, you know, um, I love to look for new and interesting ways that I can inspire my team or, um, I can help solve their problems, or I can even be that compassionate ear with like whatever they're dealing with, you know, um, technology, uh, software development. I mean, that whole journey can be so, um, difficult, especially if they're doing things that haven't been done before. Right. So just having that listen, like that, somebody on the team who's, you know, just there to really listen can make a huge difference. Um, I don't know if I quite answered your question, Matt, but it's, it's, um, I think it really comes back to, um, how does that connect back to your passion and your purpose? And for me, um, when outside of my contract at Nike, I'm also supporting, love to support entrepreneurs. I've been a mentor for the Women's Enterprise Network um, and have met incredible entrepreneurs through that journey. Um, right now, I'm consulting a with a a company that is an integrative health center and helping them um, get into a profitable mode. And also, you know, there these are people that are so passionate about solving problems and just making the world a better place. And that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, we're the ones that get to rewrite those stories, um, change the narrative, educate, so it's a very powerful role to be in and one that um, requires a lot of integrity and authenticity. Yeah, I got it. And um, 
you know, for myself, having a background in documentary filmmaking, the story that you've expressed, uh, Sandy, is is interesting from that perspective to tie in a social cause to the film that it's not just a, a documentary, but this could actually have some sort of an impact. If we look at what they've done with SeaWorld as an example, Sharkwater is an example. There's been uh, shifts. Uh, Cowspiracy is another one where they talk about the dairy industry, where documentary films do have that power that the viewer can in an instant kind of shift that perspective. So what are you seeing for you know child labor and rugs? What is it that we could show in this film that's gonna cause that emotional response in order to drive that social change? Hmm. Well, first we need to know what the situation is right now and having the world see that there are factories that have children in it where they are working on the rug during the day and then at night they pull out a cot they have a little they've been given like a little stove they're supposed to make their own food it's usually lentils or eggs and then they eat their food and then they lie down on this cot to go to sleep and then in the morning time, they roll up the cot and they sit back on the bench and they continue to weave the rug that's in front of them. Like that's their life. And they do that over and over again until they made enough money to go back home. Like they don't get to go home in, in the evenings. It's not like, oh, you come to work and then, okay, now I'm done work and I go home. They don't do that. They... They're there for months and months and months. So that, that's the piece that, that really struck me. When I saw that documentary, I was like, I'm so naive. I had no idea this still happened in this world. Wow, yeah, there's another one around um, rhinoceros tusks and they, you know, go hidden camera into some of these Places because the types of people that are in some of these industries could be quite dangerous. Do you foresee, um, you know, capturing some of this stuff as, as, as you know, you're not going to just show up with your um, GoPro or we're not going to just show up with a GoPro. Like, what do you think and how do you think we're going to be able to show this to the world? You definitely need the network. Um, that's kind of how Kalish did it for his documentary, right? He had the connections um, with people on the ground to go undercover to get into these factories. And it's dangerous. It is dangerous work. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of network. It's talking to the right people. Um, and there are, and, and that w was a description at the factory level, right? Then you also have like at the farm level, uh, which is also footage that can be captured as well. Um, and then 
it's kind of I don't remember the name of that doc. There was a documentary, or maybe it was just like a TV series that talked about garments being the garment industry, and and they that was how they revealed like H and M or those I don't remember what brands were involved. That that was where they there was a story that was done where they uncovered where the garments were made. So it's kind of similar to that, right? Like someone has to like go in there and and do the work to show the conditions. And then I also see footage being done about like this Jaipur Foundation, right? Like there is a solution. Like there are companies that are doing it. We just need to do it on a bigger scale. So showing the transition to like, these are the communities that have been transformed by these companies and it actually works. So yeah, there, there's all these different elements. Like basically following the story all the way from farm to floor, floor as in like when someone buys a rug and takes it home and puts it on their floor. So following the journey from farm to floor, I think would be the whole story that we'd want to tell. And where are you at in your business as far as next steps? You mentioned potentially doing a crowd uh, crowdfunding campaign. You had mentioned you had a business advisor who wanted you to maybe take a, a different direction in your model. Kind of where are you at? What's sort of your next steps for your business? Yeah, <laughs> I don't really have an answer to that uh, just yet. Um, as I said, we are in a cash flow crunch right now. Um, I've been having lots and lots of conversations with people from all different backgrounds. Some are telling me you should shut down the business. There's no hope. And then others are telling me, um, like, like you, like, yeah, do this documentary, raise money. Um, I'm at a point right now where it's day by day. It really is day by day. Um, having conversations with the team, knowing what we're doing, and then also presencing them constantly to our goal. Like, this is why we're doing what we're doing and presencing them to our mission and our core values, like pretty much every day. <laughs> um, and yeah. Sandy, what I can offer. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say what I... What I can offer is that my understanding is that um, there's data out there that actually demonstrates that uh, businesses with these social missions are profitable. They are profitable. Not only are they more profitable, but more people want to come and work for these kinds of businesses because they want to go home and they want to be able to sleep at night. And they want to be able to wake up and feel good about who they are and that they're making a difference. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one of the challenges that I ran into, and I, I'm again, this is not something I've recently looked into, but um, you know, this is, I've often found that this has been one of those things that a lot of women can resonate with. And yet the VC market and a lot of the 
funding and fundraising activities um, have been predominantly um, championed by men. And so it's, um, but you know, we're starting to see that shift and we're starting to see that shift in so many ways. And I think when people see a woman like you or a woman like me, they're inspired by that. You know, they're inspired to see, you know, whether it's these women that are on the factory floor and that are the ones that are making these rugs, you know, they're inspired to see somebody that looks like them. You know, that gives them hope because they've been so oftentimes conditioned to believe that they don't have a voice. And that they can't make that difference because who they find themselves as being is not, not that, not having that kind of power. Mm -hmm. You know, and if we can align with more people that are wanting to do that, that are wanting to like, not necessarily transform already existing businesses, but start those new ones that are you know, going to support those communities that will one by one start to educate. That's really the difference. And, you know, that's why I love the work that you do, Matt, because, uh, you know, I recently was watching one of these like Indian dramas with my mom and um, so many of the storylines were around women standing up for themselves in roles where women had previously would have um, been dominated in some way by a man. But now those women in their feminine essence are standing up and having those voices. And so there's a real huge opportunity to make those cultural shifts and that's what I'm excited about and that's what I think there's an opportunity that goes so much beyond rugs that like you said it's going to change communities and probably be way more far-reaching than than even just the rugs that people have on their floors. Yeah, that, the timing of this is interesting for us because we spent a decade producing documentary films for mainstream media, and that was really it. They didn't, they didn't do anything, and it, it didn't have a, it didn't have marketing behind it. We we figured out and became excellent at how to get public and private money together to fund the production of a documentary film, and then put it in mainstream media, and then move on to the next film. But what's particularly interesting about this Rugs by Rue story to me is how can we take that learning but apply this marketing piece to it? How can we take this story and have it cause that emotional effect and tie it into a campaign? For example, Coney 2012 is another big example of 
a viral seven minute, under 10 minute video that exposed these child soldiers in Africa that were getting recruited. The images of 10 and 12 year old kids or maybe younger holding AK-47s or M16s. Those are the only two guns I could name that I would know <laughs> or grenades. But like, imagine that, right? Like you're suddenly you're 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 looking around and some adults come in and murder all the and then you're being handed a machine gun and it says kill your family or we'll kill you and so this film was like holy like yeah i don't want to have that happen click here to donate and so there's these incredible examples that have happened in the last 10 years where a documentary or a video can cause that emotional response in someone and so with rugs by rue we need that sort of What's the next step? Click here, enter your email. You know, what's the thing? And not to solve that in this exact conversation, but just to establish that's what's exciting about this to me. Yeah, because what we all share in the training that um, a lot of us have had is that we can have these conversations but unless we take an action, you know, all that happens is we have a lot of great conversations. So unless I take an action and I say, okay, I'm going to donate some money or I'm going to invest in this company or I'm going to buy that rug. Unless you take that action and you share that video, there's very little that can happen. You know, you're just somebody that then like has a moment and experiences a good feeling, but then just walks away from it and, you know, puts their hands up and says, well, like, you know, <laughs> okay, I guess someone will have to solve that problem. But really it's in us, every single one of us to stop and say, no, like I am that person. You know, that's going to make that difference. It's going to buy that rug or invest in this new company because that's the world I want to be in. That's what I'm voting for. Yeah, and that's altruistic and wonderfully sounding. The challenge we're up against is like, honey, why did you buy the $1,400 rug, right? Like if- Well, if let's ask Sandy here, I'm so curious, Sandy. I mean, what what are the price points of these rugs? Are they like that much more money? They're actually not. I'm so glad you asked that question. Like people always have the perception that it's it's out of their budget as like way expensive. But if they really do the math and think about it, like when they go to like, are we allowed to name names here? Like when they go to Walmart and purchase like a $200 rug, the lifespan of that rug would be three years. But when they invest in like something that's handmade, made with intention of good materials, wool, 100%, no chemicals, that rug becomes like a family heirloom that gets passed from generation to generation. Like I'm not sure if your households have family heirlooms. Like, you've been like maybe you got a rug from your mom or something that's 
she's had in her home, right? Those rugs, those really good quality handmade ones, they last a long time. So if someone actually took the time to do the math and add up the number of Walmart rugs that they would purchase in their lifetime, <laughs> like it, it's actually super cheap, the rugs that we offer. <laughs> but people just yeah. don't take that step to think about it. You know what? I'm so glad that you're talking about that because the other thing I'm really hearing is um, it's that fast fashion thing again showing up in our like our home decor like and how all of a sudden now you know we've moved to having that faster cycle of things versus like I mean my parents bought me our bedroom furniture as a wedding gift and my husband and I will have been married for 24 years this year and it's the same bedroom furniture. And when I we purchased it, we intentionally, when um, I looked for something that was modern and had the kinds of lines that I wanted, and I still love it today. It looks fantastic. Um, but I wanted to have the, you know, it's, it's, it's made actually in Canada. Um, all of those things mattered to me. And I think if we can get those conversations back and women back to have those kinds of conversations about, um, you know, like where we have, haven't necessarily been manipulated by that wanting to have that quick dopamine fix of the new thing and the new thing and the new thing, but really coming back to love again and again and again, um, those purchases that are, like you said, the kinds of things that you invest in. And there's a piece too around culture that the timing of this, just with what's going on in the world is there's a large group of people that are just looking for the thing that they can stand up and be angry at. And that that's just frankly the world we live in. And if we want to Say you want to raise a million bucks on Kickstarter, a percentage of those buyers, maybe a third, are going to be those people that are just waiting for the thing to get mad at. This social media and digital marketing is going to drive this campaign. And if there's a way for people to stand up and get mad about the rugs and child labor, then that's going to be a market to tap into. And like, uh, and so I, I, I don't, I don't know what the right thing is there, but that's a large bunch of people that maybe are going to buy rugs so is there something that's like a hundred bucks like can there be a rug that's going to make a difference that's going to be a hundred bucks are these like what are, I, I maybe i missed it but what are the price points of these rugs um it definitely depends on the size there are rugs that are a hundred bucks <laughs> um with this we call it tough love that's my new project uh we are we're coming up with our own rug line that is certified organic made in a good weave certified factory made with 100 percent wool or cotton and is machine washable that's what tough love is about and our rugs will retail anywhere between 500 to 900 dollars depending on the size and what kind of margin is in there for um like what is there a percentage that goes back to support 
the cause to end child labor? How do you figure out, is there a foundation or a charity in the background or what's that structure look like? So the fact that we are sourcing from a factory that is Goodweave certified, we are already contributing to the Goodweave initiative, which I mentioned earlier is taking a holistic approach to ending child labor. So there is that piece. Um, and then we can really, we could layer on whatever initiative we want on top of that. So we could say, we're still at the very beginning stages. So I, I we haven't even discussed it as a team yet, but we could say, 1% planet, we could do um, donations to, um, we could do donations to um, other, like the Jaipur Foundation. Um, there's lots of, yeah, there, there is lots of initiatives that we can take that we can layer on top of this Tough Love initiative. Um, and that's kind of to be figured out with the team when we, when we actually do launch. But um, yeah. And maybe a brand deal too, you know, there's companies that want to take certain stands against social issues and maybe there's a, you know, big brand out there that wants to put their logo on a rug. What's that company from Portland that started in Portland? Large international apparel company, was that? You mean Nike? <laughs> was that Portland? That would want to buy rugs? They'll put a little Nike swoosh on. Put, a, put an iPhone charger in the side of the rug, a Nike swoosh on the top. Boom, Nike and uh, Apple come together and we've ended child labor, right? But isn't Nike making some of their shoes with some kids in a factory or is that a myth? Um, that's a really great question. I know that there was definitely some um, conversations around that in the past. I don't, I don't have that, that that's true. Um, I think that there's, in fact, probably some of the larger corporate companies, um, they have regulations against, um, against that. And they're far, they're oftentimes, uh, much more under scrutiny than some of the other smaller companies that you don't know about those smaller labels that are then selling to those larger big box, um, retailers, right? I think that that's where um, we often don't know, um, you know, who they are, and then they can turn around, and just switch a company name and start up again, right? Versus like the larger companies like Nike, um, they're a lot more under the scrutiny. And where does that accountability, Sandy, from your perspective, ultimately fall? I know that the end user gets upset but what about the responsibility of those as bippin just described i think quite intelligently that there's these white labels fly by night in and out maybe they mass produce a whole bunch of rugs sell them to one of these large retailers what's like these like if if, if one of these big box stores buys a hundred thousand rugs that are using child labor like where is the accountability on those groups there isn't any right now. Like a big box store can totally buy a hundred thousand units from a factory where they have not done thorough research and it is made by children. And what's the alternative life for that child? The way you described that they're sleeping in the factory, eating their bowl of rice, would they be going hungry and not have a roof over their head if that company wasn't there exploiting that labor? 
well, the alternative is they could go to school and the parents be paid fair wages, right? Like if everyone actually looked at this issue and really did something about it, then isn't that like the better long-term approach? I think, I think what I'm hearing you say, Sandy, it's, it's kind of similar to, again, I, I keep going back to that example of Whole Foods and the food industry. And I remember, you know, it was shortly after, um, you know, once you started to see Whole Foods growing, all of a sudden you would see a small section in the produce area at Walmart or a small section in the produce area at like, um, um, save, not save on, but like, you know, at all of those different kinds of grocery outlets, right? All of a sudden they started having organic produce. Whereas like before you would really only find those kinds of products and serve like things being sold only. But now, you know, with consumers being a bigger demand for that, it's all about creating that demand. It is. Yeah. Like you that's know, why I, like we talked about ethical Amazon, right? Like that, I don't know if it's a rumor, but there was rumor that Amazon is kind of heading that way now because not because they want to, but because it's demanded by people, right? Like people are questioning, okay, who makes this? How's it made? Like, where is it made? And they're not just going by, oh, this is a big brand that I'm familiar with, so I'm going to trust them. No, I think people are starting to ask the questions. And that's why you hear, yeah, like like topics of like ethical Amazon being built or other kind of similar platforms that are actually addressing this. So it's definitely... I think people are becoming more aware and it's definitely trending in that direction. And it really is, okay, like there are all these different sectors that have the same issue. So let's like tackle all of them, right? At the same time and create that shift. Got it. And yeah, can we get present again to, you know, after this, like, what are you, what are you, what are you up to? What's your plan? How do you, uh, you know, in the, maybe in the spirit of uh, a team that you have to support you, what's the makeup of that team and what's everyone going to be doing over the next quarter to achieve your optimal outcome? Yeah. So it's called Tough Love. That's the brand. Uh, that's the new collection. Um, and currently I have a, I actually have a team of friends and family who really uh, believe in this cause and have um, generously donated their time to help me on this project. Um, and we are setting out to launch a crowdfunding campaign to raise front to raise funds to launch the to launch the collection as well as raise funds to create a documentary to really um, share this with the world. So, uh, and that is, I guess the plan is to have that happen. The plan is to have that happen within 2023. Have you looked at how much money you need to raise or want to raise? No. How much do I need to raise, Matt, to create a documentary? A million bucks. 
Okay, sure. We'll raise a million dollars then. <laughs> so Matt, um, playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. Do we have to, as an MVP, what do you think is needed and required? Do we need to go, uh, you know, to the scale of a documentary? Oh, sorry, what was the acronym? Minimum Viable Product, MVP. <laughs> I, I thought you were throwing a compliment my way at most valuable player on the team, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, I've never done anything like this. That's why this is particularly exciting and interesting as a marketer and also a filmmaker. It satisfies both sides. Um, a short video uh, with some guerrilla footage of someone in one of these camps or locations that, you know, getting our hands on some of that footage uh, uh, and having some music with a story behind it could potentially be enough. Like anything else, though, this is a marketing problem. And as good as a viral video might be, there's so many other factories. What's going on in the world? What election is happening? What are, how are you going to get people's attention? And with a strong marketing plan and money, you still might not get the right attention. There's some groups that I do know of that operate in 100% certainty doing crowdsource campaigns where you want to raise a million bucks, it's going to cost three to 400 in marketing to get to that raise. But they, they have a level of certainty and a high degree of certainty that it'll work. So, but then what are you left with? You got, say you raise a million bucks, you haven't even produced a documentary yet. You just spent money on marketing and then delivered rugs and your perks. So then maybe you need to raise two million. So for as far as the MVP, uh, do you mean MVP for the rug or MVP for the actual marketing? The marketing. Yeah, I mean, if, the, if there was a way to go get our hands on some of that footage, then that could be a starting point. And it also might be enough to get the right person angry, right? Because when we talk about you got good marketing plan, okay, you could work with us or you work with any of the other great marketing companies in this continent or world. Find the right person with money that gets mad and they can help fund this. Okay, great, you've got money and now you've got marketing. And then look at what's going on in the world and where this, where's that right pocket? Again, those big examples, there's probably six in the last 10 years outside of politics and everything else that people get upset about. But if you took the six documentaries about social issues in the last decade, it was that little sweet spot where like suddenly it gave that 30 to 40% of people that are just sitting around waiting to get mad about something. That's what's going to drive this over because you can have as many wealthy people in the background that care and want to make a social cause. But if you want to make change, you got to get that pocket of people that are sitting around waiting for the thing to get mad about and child labor and rugs could potentially be that thing. Sandy, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from Matt is first, it sounds like um, you have a connection with one of the manufacturers that is meets these um, certifications and things like that. And maybe they have a connection you know, back to the filmmaker. I don't know if you've built that relationship, 
or you've gone and connected with them and shared that, you know, that's, that that film had that deep of a level of impact on you, that you went and took this action and you built an entire company. And now today you're supporting the, the very rugs that, you know, he's wanting these companies, you know, these smaller brands to make. And now you're doing that. You know, I know that if I had gone out to have that kind of mission in the world and somebody came back to me and said, you know what, you made such a difference and this is what I did as a result of that, I'd want to know. You know, it goes back to what I said, you know, it wasn't, you were one of those unique individuals that you acted on it. You didn't just have that feeling and then just go to bed and say, well, you know, what do I do about it? I love that because then it's like a springboard to like part two of what was the name? Did you say Sandy? The tough, first documentary. Tough love. No, not not the first documentary that you saw. The the price of free. Price of free. It's like price of free, and then add the what the uh, we're not adding the dumb here. We're adding the smart, but. Part two to price of free, price of freedom, or some sort of part two that's like, you know, some of the most successful documentaries have that first person narrative. And if you're that character. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah, I know. I'm brilliant. I, I, um, I love it. No, the, I'm what I just like had this light bulb moment, Matt. I, I think what I'm hearing is like, we often hear about these documentaries, but then it's like, where did where did that mission end up two, three years from now? Like what difference did it make? What happened as a result? It's kind of like, you know, when you watch Shark Tank and then they circle back with those, those entrepreneurs that got the funding and now what they've built with it, that, that story gets told, you know, what did they build with that? Love that. Well, this is going to be a to be continued because I think what's particularly interesting about this story is, well, here, like cliffhanger. Okay, let's find out who that filmmaker is and let's reach out and say, this is what we want to do. Do you want to be a part of it? And then put some kind of action in place behind that. We're working with, you know, this company in in Alberta. They've done 17 documentaries. They know how to do this kind of stuff. I'm inspired by this. I'm going to be the character. You know, there's the young man in shark water. Hey, I've always loved scuba diving. I saw this problem with sharks. They're cutting all the fins off and then kind of gets in the story is now you're our, you're that Sandy, you're the character that we get to follow. And let's watch this unfold in real time. Mm. Sandy, I also see an opportunity. I really see the opportunity of taking that kind of footage, putting it together um, inside of this conversation and really taking that to those companies, those, you know, why not rather than, you know, we're not trying to take those big box companies out of the market. We're just saying, just like at Whole Foods, have an organic aisle. Mm-hmm. You know, can I be your organic aisle at Pottery Barn at Williams Sonoma? You know, can I be your organic aisle anthropology 
inside of your home addition, like that seems like a really great fit because if they've kind of got that Eastern aesthetic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Sandy, can you let us know how our viewers can find you? Yeah. So if you want to shop our products, you can go to rugsbyru.com and that's where we um, have all our suppliers, the ones that we curated that are ethical and healthy. Um, and if you want to follow us on our tough love journey, um, you can also subscribe to our tough love uh, subscriber list, which can be found at rugsbyru.com slash love. And tuft is spelt T-U-F-T. Thanks, Sandy. And Bippin, how can people find you? So great. Um, I have a website in the making. And in the meantime, they can find me at bippin.dylan at gmail.com. And they can work with me. Thanks, Bippin. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs>